I want to say words that you can hear. <laughs> so good morning to all of you. I was uh, uh, caught up in the worship and forgot all about my microphone, which is a great thing. I want to say thank you to uh, our uh, worship team for standing in this morning and uh, leading us in uh, uh, bringing uh, worship and praises to our God. If we would uh, open our Bibles now to Psalm 130, please. Psalm 130 is going to be our text for the day. And if you don't uh, get the regular email that, uh, that we send out, there is one that goes out midweek, uh, usually about Thursdays, and in there we update you about certain uh, prayer, prayer requests, uh, items of praise, or uh, calendar things, and in there we also talk about the passage we're going to be, pre be preaching on this week. And so if you don't receive that email, if you would uh, contact the office and let us know, give us your email address, then uh, we will go ahead and, and add you to that, and we will um, uh, help you to be prepared for what we come to on a Sunday morning. And uh, so this morning, we are in Psalm 130, and I want to read it for us, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. I, I feel a little odd here. Were we supposed to dismiss for Children's Church and didn't, or did, was I distracted by my... Does anyone know? Do what? Okay, I would like to dismiss the children who are like potty trained up to like second grade for Children's Church, right? Yes? Okay, thank you. So if that's you, then go ahead. Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths... I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in His Word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, we rejoice that we get to do so, that we have Your Word in our hands, translated into our language. We have opportunity to come together on a Sunday morning as a congregation. We have air conditioning. We have safety and security. We have the body of Christ gathered around us. We have your word in our hands and your spirit in our hearts. This morning as we turn to this passage, I pray, Father, that you would help us to engage with this text, to engage with this text in light of our lives, in light of the things 
that we're facing week in and week out, maybe the acute pains of the moment, maybe the larger struggles of life, may we get a new perspective on those as we look into Your Word. We ask that You would work on our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I wonder this morning, I'm not really a musical uh, person, and I don't always have a song stuck in my mind, uh, though sometimes I do, but I wonder about you this morning as you were on your way to church this morning, if you had a particular song, a particular melody, if you had something that was just repeating in your mind, I wonder what that was. Maybe it wasn't a song, maybe it was uh, just something that uh, is stuck in your mind that you can't shake, that is uh, repeating itself to you, it's playing in your mind. Today we're going to be talking about a psalm that is included amongst the the songs of ascents. That's a section of 15 psalms found from uh, Psalm 120 up through Psalm 134, and those psalms are called the songs of ascents. and uh, ascending. The idea is they're going up, and, and uh, I think it's helpful for us to think about what exactly uh, perhaps a song of ascent means, and, and, and there are two likely candidates for what those mean. One is that they might be uh, songs that were intended to be sung as you approached Jerusalem to go up for one of the high feasts where you were, you were uh, coming in from the surrounding countryside, and you were coming to the temple, and you were going to be there for some time worshiping. You're going to uh, partake of, of one of the feasts. And this, perhaps, was a list of psalms that were designed and written uh, to raise the hearts and the eyes and the minds of the worshiper as they approached Jerusalem, as they were ascending and coming up to Jerusalem to uh, participate in that feast. This uh, psalm and, and others like it, perhaps, were written to assist in that, to transition from regular life to now we're entering into this special time of worship with the feasts and being together, uh, etc., at the temple. That's one option. I think that's a good option. But there's another one that's very intriguing as well. Some have speculated that these psalms were gathered together and included uh, as a set of psalms, particularly for those who are returning from exile. If you think about Israel, uh, Judah particularly, had been exiled from their land, and they had been sent off into Babylon, and they were in captivity for 70-plus years. And, and as those exiles would return to the land, and they would come back, and they, would, they were entering back into their homeland, and not just their homeland, but they were entering back to the place that held the temple where they worshipped. It was the very center of their religion was there in Jerusalem, and, and perhaps these psalms were gathered to assist them in that process, to, to help them anticipate coming from a pagan land where they had been in exile for all this time and come back into Jerusalem and and coming back into the opportunity to worship with the temple sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. Well, I don't know exactly. I think those two options are good options, but, but it helps us in our time to prepare our minds for Sunday morning. And so I ask, what, what was the song on your mind? What was the what was on repeat in your head as you went to bed last night, as you woke up this morning, maybe as you were 
driving to church. On this Lord's Day, what was it playing in your mind? And so we're going to look at Psalm 130, and as we do, many of you will be able to identify with this psalmist, and all of us can learn from his words in this passage. So let's work our way through and uh, see what we find in this psalm. We start off, of course, verse 1, talking about the depths. I love the psalms. They speak from where you are or where you've been or maybe where you will be. And this one certainly does that. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the low places, from a, from a dark and lonely place in my heart, in my life, from a difficult time, from the depths as if I were drowning in the water, in over my head and exhausted. Out of the depths I cry to you. Well, that kind of sets the tone for this psalm. Sometimes the psalms are purely rejoicing and celebrating uh, God's goodness, and, and sometimes they are turned to how to deal with your enemies. And this one is turned to a situation that Christians face of being in the depths, being in a low place. Christians, too, have times where they are in that place of darkness and loneliness. Scary, uncertain places are not visited only by those who don't know Christ. They're visited by God's precious children as well. And here we have one crying out to God from a dark place. And we don't know exactly what the dark place, and in, in, in a sense it doesn't really matter what that dark place is. From that place of loneliness and sorrow and pain, the psalmist is crying out to the Lord, recognizing, I am in the depths. And we shouldn't think less of others, Christian, when we see them in the depths. I think sometimes we have perhaps a tendency to do that when things are going fine for us and we see someone else struggling and they just can't seem to, to shake this, this darkness and this difficulty and, and this um, a sense of hopelessness or something, and we think, you know, get over it like I did, you know. And we shouldn't treat each other that way. Nor should we be surprised when we find ourselves in that place. That's a reality of life for the Christian as well as the non-Christian. So we see the depths here that the author, this psalmist, cries out from, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And what, what is the prayer? Verse 2, O oh Lord, hear my voice. Have you ever felt like God is so far distant that maybe your voice isn't even making it all the way there? That almost like you need a megaphone? You feel like you wonder, is God even hearing me? And this psalmist says, O oh Lord, hear my voice. Listen to what I'm saying. Pay, pay attention to me in my, in my agony. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So this psalmist finds himself in a dark place, and his response, being in that dark place, is to cry out and ask for help. 
Do you ask for help? Do you cry out to God and ask Him for help? I think sometimes we maybe don't. Sometimes we find ourselves suffering and we somehow just stay there. We might, we might send up the occasional plea for God's help, but we don't, we don't really seek His help, perhaps. I remember when I was in high school and I was on the basketball team and, and we were playing in a, uh, a tournament in Quincy, and so the way they used to do that tournament was that we would be housed in the homes of the players of the, of the local team, of the Quincy team. So all these teams would come in and they would be housed, you know, three, four, five kids, uh, basketball players in these other uh, people's homes. And, and it was a, a neat thing, neat opportunity to meet the other players and to meet these families. And, and I remember very clearly being at this one house that was a particularly nice house and they served a huge breakfast. And it was a pancake breakfast and it was enormous. It's the kind where the pancakes just keep coming and, and you feel like there's going to be no end, but you're still eating them all. And, and there I was with all my buddies and, the, and you know, it was, it was a, a beautiful breakfast. Man, I didn't have anything to drink. Everybody else had a glass of milk or a glass of water or whatever around the table. And I sat down and I saw that I had none and I thought, oh, well, that's no big deal. But about my eighth pancake in, I started realizing that I'm thirsty. And, and, uh, and so I, I was trying to like look pitiful so that the hostess would notice that I didn't have a glass and everybody else did, but I didn't bother to ask. I was too shy to speak up and say, may I have a glass of water, please? I would just... I was content to suffer. I wasn't content, but I was determined to suffer. And I think sometimes that's the way we, we are in our lives, that, that when, we're, when we find ourselves in, a, in, in, in the depths, we find ourselves suffering, do we, do we make our needs known to God, or do we just sit there not content to suffer, but determined to suffer? This is an encouragement to me, not to be shy with God. We and I need to become more of a praying people. That when we see our need, when we feel the impact of the circumstance in our lives, when we experience a hardship, when we find ourselves in the depths, we need to be like this psalmist and bring that need to God, that, that God would hear our voice, that He would hear our pleas for mercy, that we would give Him no rest, as it were, that we would continually bring it to Him, that we would ask for help until we get the help. And that's what we see here is that this psalmist from the depths cries out and prays, and I think we need to do that. We need to be a praying people. And I don't know exactly the depths that you may have experienced or the depths that you may be experiencing currently? What is, that, what is that sorrow? What is that agony? What is that hard thing that you face? And you find yourself, if you're anything like me, and, may, and maybe this is just me, you find yourself wallowing in it more than bringing it to the Lord. Let's bring that to the Lord. And so we see that that's what the psalmist does here. And we move on to verse 3, and we begin to see in verses 3 and 4 what is the basis for our prayer. How is it that we 
can be heard, have any confidence? How is it that we can have any kind of idea that God is actually going to hear us? I mean, after all, we feel like we're in the depths. We feel like, you know, we've already gone under the water and our cries aren't going to make it to God. We've already uh, perhaps felt like that. So what, what is the basis? Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He's, he's in the process of praying and he's thinking about how is it that God will hear my prayer? How is it that my prayer can get through to God when I am such a sinner? When I have sin? Why is it that he, that he brings up sin at this point? He's going to deal with it, but why does he even bring it up? Well, I think it's the notion of merit that we all have, that if we were to clean ourselves up and come to God, He would be more likely to hear us. That if, if we were to uh, be sinless, that, that God would answer our prayer. And if I observe my life and I see, well, that there actually is sin, and I've confessed it and forsaken it, and I've gone back to it, and I've confessed it and forsaken it. I struggle. I have sin in my life. I have iniquity in my life. I'm never going to be cleaned up enough to go to God. I'll never be able to come into His presence. That's, that's because of the idea of merit. If we got cleaned up enough, God would hear us and God would, more to the point, do what we ask. But the psalmist is aware that he doesn't have that kind of righteousness. He doesn't have that kind of outfit to wear before God. He doesn't have in himself a spotless record. And so he has sin, and that would block his cry. And here's the basis for why we can bring it. With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Yes, it is true that, Lord, if you were to mark iniquities, if you were to check everyone's status at the door like they were doing at COVID with the, the little temperature thing to your forehead, if they were to check, if God were to check everyone's sin status at the door, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. And so we have opportunity. We have the ability to come into God's presence. God doesn't mark iniquities this way. Yes, God recognizes. God is not ignorant of our sin. But He's not checking at the door everyone who makes an appeal to Him to determine whether He will or will not answer or whether that person has audience with them in this way. If you sinned this week, I'm sorry, don't even bother praying. He doesn't do that. That would be marking iniquities. And that's not what He does. No one could stand under such circumstance. But verse 4, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We see, first of all, that we have boldness, we have confidence, we have a basis to enter into God's presence because of His mercy. 
And verse 4 shows us something amazing, that His mercy produces something in us. It produces fear. Look at verse 4. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I don't know how many times I've blown right past that verse. How many times have you read Psalm 130? I mean, many of you probably have a Bible reading plan where uh, maybe you read a, a, a proverb a day and then you read five psalms a day. If you do that, you will, you will read the psalms and the proverbs every single month. Maybe you've read this 50 times. I wonder how many times you've passed over verse 4 and not really thought about what exactly it means. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We know God is a forgiving God. We know that with God there is forgiveness. We are at church. We're not surprised by these things. What does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean that we are to fear God? Well, he's not talking about uh, the same thing that John was talking about in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18, which is often what comes to people's mind when they, when they hear that perfect love casts out fear. Therefore, we shouldn't fear God. No, we're talking about two different things. John in 1 John chapter 4 is talking about the kind of fear that is, has an expectation of the judgment that is to come that I'm going to bear the penalty for my sin, and, and thus I'm going to be afraid. It's the kind of fear that, that wants us to, that causes us to want to run away from God. And in that fear, in discussing that one, John says in 1 John chapter 4 that love casts that fear out. That love is Jesus taking the penalty for our sins upon Himself so that the penalty is paid not, not in us, the penalty is paid in Christ, and so for the Christian, we don't have an expectation of condemnation. We have a confidence, quite the contrary, according to Romans chapter 8, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so that kind of fear is cast out. But again and again, the Bible tells us to fear the Lord. So what does that kind of fear mean? What is, what's the fear that's meant here in Psalm 130? Well, here's what it means. It's a sober, reverential understanding of who God really is and what He is really like, especially in contrast to us. So we have a clear conception of who God is and what He's like, and we have a clear conception of who we are and what we're like, and the response is fear. It's a humble love and submission that obeys God. It's not the kind of fear that causes us to run away from, to try to escape God. It's the kind of fear that wants us, causes us to want to draw near to Him. Because we recognize who He is, we recognize who we are left to ourselves, and that He has mended that in Christ. And so, we want to be in His presence. We want to be obedient to Him. We want to submit to Him. We love Him. We have come to love Him because He first loved us. There's a statement here in verse 4 that, that I don't want us to pass by. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wonder if you were to have written this, what you would have said. 
how you would relate forgiveness and fear. There is a conventional wisdom that might say that godly fear is greatest when forgiveness is uncertain. Wouldn't you be more fearful? Wouldn't you be more likely to be obedient if forgiveness were uncertain? If it were held out in front of you like a carrot? If I fear God appropriately, then I will have forgiveness? That's conventional wisdom. And that's something that we are tempted with as well. And actually, that, that's at the heart of the, the Reformation discussion between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants was exa- exactly that issue because the Roman Catholic Church would hold off, would, would, would leave that forgiveness as a carrot out in front of you, encouraging you to be more obedient, to fear God more. And if you achieved that adequately, then you could have forgiveness. Then you could have justification before God. It was a carrot held out before you. That's contrary to what it says here. Look at, look at verse 4. Though We may think that way. Some of you may have been raised in that context, whether in the Roman Catholic Church or, or anywhere else. You may have that kind of merit-based mentality that still sort of lingers, but listen to what it says here in verse 4. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Where does the forgiveness come in relation to the fear? Is the forgiveness held off into the future like a carrot? No, it's exactly the other way around. The fear does not cause the forgiveness. Here in the logic of this verse, the forgiveness leads to and causes the fear. And that's a change. That's, that's different than we might expect, but that's exactly the logic of this passage. With you there is forgiveness. Some verses or some English versions translate that. Next word is so that. With the purpose that, with the result that, God is feared. According to biblical logic, which is very different from conventional logic, forgiveness of sins results in a godly fear of God. And so, conventional wisdom says, hold off on that forgiveness because you've got to entice people like with a carrot to be obedient. And once they've obeyed enough, once they've feared God enough, then they can be rewarded eventually, hopefully, with forgiveness. Biblical logic is exactly the other way. Biblical logic says you could never obey enough. Because of your sin, because of the, the, the condition of, of your soul, because of your sin that you have committed yourself, that you desire to do, and that you've inherited from Adam, you could never obey God enough to accumulate or to acquire or to merit His favor. What you deserve in yourself, what each of us deserves in ourselves, is judgment from God. But, but the Son of God agreed to take on human flesh, to become one of us, Jesus, to live as one of us, yet obedient, and to die in our place to bear the punishment from God for our sin. 
so that the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God could be given to us at the very beginning of our Christian life so that we receive mercy, we receive forgiveness, we receive God's favor. We, we, we have and receive a right relationship with God at the beginning by faith in Christ. Not because of what we've done, not because of something we've accomplished, not because we feared long enough or well enough or we obeyed well enough or any of that stuff. Because of what Christ has done, and it's ours by faith, we are declared righteous before God. The payment has been made. Now, when conventional wisdom looks at that and assesses this, what conventional wisdom says is, if you do that, if you give someone forgiveness of sins, if you give them right standing with God, if you give them assurance of their salvation, they'll just live like the devil. They'll spend the rest of their lives pursuing their own desires, their own lusts, building their own kingdoms. You've heard that before. If you've shared the gospel with, uh, with perhaps a Mormon, and that's the response. Wait a minute. If you give forgiveness at the very beginning, isn't the result going to be a life of, of, of wanton dissipation? You've heard that. That's what conventional wisdom, how it would critique biblical wisdom. They'll just run with it. If you, if you give someone forgiveness up front, the result is going to be the opposite of the fear of God. There will be no fear of God. If you give them forgiveness up front, you don't know what you're going to get. Biblical logic is very, very different. Biblical logic says, no, we could never have obeyed enough. We could never have earned favor with God. In order for us to possess favor with God, it must be given to us by God. And that's exactly what we have in Christ. And so, a person comes to faith in Christ. They are justified before God. They are declared to be righteous. Their sins are forgiven. What next? Well, according to the logic of verse 4, the result is God is feared. The result is that the person who now has received their sentence being commuted, they've received forgiveness, they, they have they received right standing with God. Now, that person has been made alive and awake and aware of this gift that God has given, when God had every right to give judgment instead, He gave this wonderful gift so that now, whereas, whereas before God was judge, and that's all we could see God as, judge, the one who's going to call us to account for our sins and, and, and who's going to condemn us to hell, now by faith in Christ we find that same God is, is our, our tender Father who loves us, who has placed the whole penalty for our sin on Jesus. And now we view Him with new eyes. Now we view Him with, as one who doesn't have to earn favor with God because I already have it. Now we, we, we look at God as our Father, not a distant judge. 
along with his change of disposition, where we now see God as our Father, as He truly is, and we get to be His child and we have forgiveness with Him, He also places His Spirit within us. He also works in our hearts so that we're convicted of ongoing sin, so that we're, we're drawn to, to come and worship God. We're drawn to forsake our sins, to obey God, to, to come toward Him all the more. And so it's not just a change of mindset. It's not just a change of perspective, but the Spirit of God has come to dwell in His children to draw us all the more towards God. And so our verse here says, with the Lord there is forgiveness with the result that God is feared. Now we who have received forgiveness, very far from living just however we want to live, pursuing our own lusts and and those sorts of things, far from that, instead we, we actually now consider how we can obey God how we can honor Him, our Father who has saved us like this. The psalmist says, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's the basis of how we can come to God in prayer. That's the basis of how we can trust Him, how we can find hope in Him. Nothing of what we have done, but all of what He has done and who He is. And then what do we do? Then we wait. Point number four, there's the wait. Verses five and six, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His Word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. We find ourselves in the place of despair. We cry out to God. We realize the only reason we can is because of what Christ has done for us, the mercy that He's poured out upon us. And by the way, if He has poured out that kind of mercy that that cost Christ His own life, is He going to pull up short in giving you this lesser mercy of helping you in the time when you're in the depths? Of course not. He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? And so we wait. We pray and we wait for the Lord. Now, does that mean we sit on our hands? We uh, sit on the couch and and, uh, eat nachos and just wait for God to solve the problem? No. We still know how we are to obey God. We still know the things He's given us to do. We still have lives where we have responsibilities, and so we continue to serve one another. We continue to minister to our family. We continue to parent our children and, and be diligent at work. We continue to, to honor the Lord in, our, in our, our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds. We continue to seek to obey Him and all those things. We're doing all of those things, and we're even trying to figure out how maybe there's some way I can resolve this issue. Maybe I find myself in the depths because of choices I've made. And so maybe I need to make some other choices and I can get out of the depths. There are steps I can take. There are things I can do. But ultimately, I know that what I'm really waiting for is God to move. He's the only one who can take me out of the depths, out of the miry clay, put my feet on the rock. He's the one ultimately who can do that. And so I wait for Him. I trust in Him. So here's a kind of an exhortation for all of us, me especially, we should wait for the Lord more intensely than we wait for anything else. Did you notice the repetition there? 
My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. No, you missed it. More than watchmen for the morning. The first time I read this, I thought there was actually a typo in my Bible. I thought the printer had gotten something wrong, but no, the psalmist means to repeat it. Means us to think about the thoughts of the watchman as he's going through the night watch, which is lonely and cold and dark, and that's when it's the most dangerous. That's when it's the scariest, and that watchman, though he's doing his rounds and though he's taking care of all the things he needs to take care of, he's waiting for the morning. When this dangerous watch is done, when this cold and lonely and dark watch is done, he waits for the morning. He's longing. He keeps looking east to see if maybe there's a little bit of a, 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 of a lightning to the sky in the east. Maybe he can see the horizon. He's waiting. He's waiting. And the psalmist says, no, my soul waits for the Lord more than that. More than that. In actuality, we should wait for the Lord more intensely than we wait for anything with no real comparison. And so think about your own situation. Think about the depths that you may find yourself in or perhaps the depths that you have been in in the past or, or the ones that you fear you may, might head into. We've been in those. We've dealt with those dark places. How would you finish this sentence? In the midst of that depth, in the midst of that struggle and hardship, how would you finish this sentence? Everything will be better when... Whatever you put after the word when is what you're waiting for. Everything will be better when I finally get my finances figured out. Everything will be better when I finally uh, 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 get this relationship in order. Everything will be better when things start going better at work. Everything will be better when whatever you fill in that blank with is what you're ultimately waiting for. And the challenge for us from this passage, and it's a challenge for me as much as for anyone, is to wait on the Lord. Everything will be better when the Lord acts, when the Lord hears, when the Lord answers, when the Lord comes through in the way that He knows is best, that's when. It will be like the watchman waiting for the sun. That's when it will be all right. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Do you notice I, I passed by it at the end of verse 5 there? In His Word, I hope. Why does it say that? Why does the Bible continually point us back to the Bible? Why does the Bible continue to say that we need to keep our eyes fixed in the Bible? Well, for a number of reasons. One is that we tend to forget what's there more than we'd like to admit. Even when we read regularly, even perhaps when we talk about the Bible regularly, even when we love God's Word, we still forget what is in it. And I, I don't mean, uh, uh, you know, what is Psalm 43 about, or, or I'm not talking about the details precisely. It points us to who God is and what He's done. And how often do we forget that? 
How often do we move on from who God is and what He's done and we, we, we begin to uh, focus all of our thinking back on our own plan of how we're going to get ourselves out of this problem? Or we focus on our problem itself or any of a hundred other things. The Bible reminds us of who God is and what He has done for us in Christ. And so we we go to the Word and we're reminded of what He is like. We're reminded of what He's done. We're reminded that with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The Bible tells us again and again in the promises and, and in the directions and in the teaching about who God is, what He is like. And so we ponder the Word. We reflect on the Word like, like in the old days when, when lovers used to write letters to each other when they couldn't be together. They actually took a pen and paper and they would write on the paper and put it in the mail and three days later it would get there. And when you got the letter from your loved one, you would read the letter again and again. And you'd fold it and put it away. And you'd pull it out later. When you missed that person, when you didn't have opportunity to talk to them and, and it was going to be a long time and, and, you, and you pull it out and you read it again to remind yourself yeah, she really is wonderful. That's a quick story on myself. Uh, my wife and I, when we were dating, we wrote a lot of letters to each other. That was back in the day. And we would read those and reread them and reread them. And I had a box and I would stuff them all in a box. And one time when I was moving, the box that was in got lost. So I don't have a single letter from her. I know. I know. The red's like, oh no, that's bad. <laughs> but I tried. But it didn't. But she has letters for me, and I lost them. But you pull them out. You want to read them over. We, we wait for the Lord, and we open His Word to remind ourselves that He is worth waiting for. And look at verses 7 and 8. Oh, Israel, this is the hope. This is the hope. The way He expresses the hope here in verses 7 and 8. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. By looking into God's Word, being reminded of His mercy toward us, we learn better to hope in Him. We are reminded and encouraged to hope in Him and that He can bear up under that hope, that He is worth us placing our hope in. We hope in Him because of His steadfast love for us, which is astounding every time you think about it. That Almighty, Holy God would love sinful, tiny people like us. So we hope in Him because of His steadfast love for us, and we hope in Him, secondly, because of the wonder that He has redeemed us in Christ. Not only has He loved us, that would be enough that God would think kindly, that He would behave kindly, that He would give us good gifts, that would be enough. But He goes, he goes the extra mile and redeems us in Christ, calling us into relationship with Himself based upon the merit of Christ, that we who were slaves to sin and hostile to God have been brought into His very family. And that redemption He will perfect. He will bring it to completion. He will not let it fail. He redeems us entirely. We have hope because of what our God is like. We have hope because He has redeemed us, because of His great love for us. 
that would show itself in our redemption. We have hope even in the darkest times where we are tempted to despair, we have hope because of the one who has placed his love on us and redeemed us in Jesus. And so, I don't know what dark place you find yourself in or what dark place, what depth appears in your mind when we say that word and talk about that topic, but from that place, and even if that place were ten times worse than you fear it could be or have ever experienced it being, and I know that's bad, even if that is the reality of your depth, there is hope there because of who our God is. Just a couple of points of application and we'll be done. Acknowledge when you are in the deep, dark places. Just admit it. You don't have to tell everybody. You should tell somebody. You should tell a Christian brother or sister. But acknowledge it. And particularly acknowledge it to yourself. Secondly, cry out to God for His deliverance while you were there in that dark place. Somehow it's tempting when you're in the dark place to, to hold off on crying out to God until you've kind of made something of yourself, until you've kind of clawed out of the hole a little bit. Cry out to Him from the depths of that place. Thirdly, let the deeply comforting truth that your sins are forgiven in Christ drive you closer and closer to your Savior. We discussed sin this morning in our Sunday school class. By the way, if you're not attending Sunday school class, you're missing out. Nine o'clock over in the fellowship hall. It's been a a wonderful uh, summer studying the topic of hope. And sin has been forgiven in Christ, Christian. Sometimes we just don't like to think about our sin. We don't want to acknowledge it, but it's there, folks. And when we think about it, when we acknowledge it, when we understand that with you there is forgiveness, the result is we are drawn closer to God all the more. Fourthly, and wait on the Lord as He takes you out of despair and into a confident hope in Him who loves you and has redeemed you. So cry out to Him. Be comforted by the redemption that is ours in Christ. And when we fill in that sentence, everything will be better when. We need to remind ourselves and we need to remind one another that, yeah, changes of circumstances can be really nice and very helpful in a lot, of, a lot of situations. But the ultimate help, things will really be better when God moves. And in that, we hope. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that many of us are dealing with depths, darkness, miry clay, a difficult spot in life, It's hard to see our way out of. It's like a hole that we've fallen into that's dim and dark. And and so we can feel hopeless. But, Father, I pray that even if we are in the worst depth we have been in in our entire life, that we would cry out to You. 
that we would cry out to you to hear us, to answer our pleas for mercy, that we would recognize the fact that though our sins are more than we can imagine, you don't count them against the Christian because they were counted against Christ, and thus we have forgiveness, and thus you are feared. And may we wait. We need to take care of our responsibilities and do what we can, and, and uh, we need to be obedient and love one another in the midst of being in, the, in the, the dark spot. So we don't sit and wait, but we do wait, waiting for you to bring the answer that you know is good and right and best, waiting for you to move. And may we find hope in looking and waiting for you. May we find hope in the fact that we get to be rightly related to you. We get to be called your very children because of what Jesus has done for us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I would remind you that uh, 4.30 this evening, this, there's going to be the picnic in the park, actually in the fellowship hall, because there's air conditioning there and not in the park. And so I didn't really want to be sweating out there. So I remind you to that. Uh, and as well, uh, keep in mind what Stephen said. If you decide at, uh, at, at the last moment that, hey, you can attend, but you don't have anything ready, come on down. Come on, come and join us at 4.30. Uh, there's going to be a family up front who would love to uh, pray with you if you have a prayer request you want to bring to them. And I will be down front as well if you have questions uh, or concerns or, or uh, want to talk to me. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.